on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by yet again nobody, just me here in Studio B, the rest of the team enjoying a much-needed vacation, mostly because Season 7 of the OBS is right around the corner. That kicks off Wednesday, September 15th, 9 p.m. Central on the Dallas Opera Network, and then as a podcast on Thursday the 16th. We have such a great lineup. You do not want to miss the opening of season seven. But first, this week, it is another throwback best of episode with our tag team tenors. So excited about this. Benjamin Bernheim's Inside the Huddle interview back on the show, followed by the one, the only Lawrence Brownlee when we spent some time with him as well. But first, a little bit of sports talk. I got confused. I thought the NFL season started last week, the week before Labor Day. Clearly, that makes no sense. Why would you start America's game prior to the holiday weekend? They, I think, got rid of a preseason game in there so they could add a 17th game to the season. So anyway, the point is, OBS is back with... uh, Opera Philadelphia's Fantasy Football League. Now, last year, we didn't do so well. I say we, Tobias Wright, former host of the OBS and I, we were on a team together. For some reason, I did the entire draft myself, which was a disaster. And we sort of slugged through a dreadful season last year. Different times. Toby did the draft this year. I feel really good about the draft. And in week one, starting this week, we go head-to-head with David Devan, General Director of Opera Philadelphia, winner of last year's Opera Philadelphia Fantasy Football League. You can follow all the action, hashtag Opera on the Ball. Of course, you want to check out what Opera Phila is doing on stage as well. We'll keep you posted on how the OBS fantasy football team is playing out too. That's enough of that. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Benjamin Bernheim capped off this summer making his long-awaited title role debut in the Tales of Hoffman, which was also his house debut at the Staatsoper Hamburg, the 2020. 2021 season includes singing Des Grieux opposite Pretty Yende as Manon in a performance from the Paris Opera that received an international radio broadcast. There was a gala concert to reopen the Toulouse Capital Theater. He won a Diapson d'Or for his debut recording, and he was named Best Male Singer of the Year by Oprah Magazine. You see what being a friend of the show can do for you? Let's wind it back to October of 2020. And hear from a perhaps more humble Benjamin Bernheim before being showered with all that glory. This is when Matt Cummings and Oliver Camacho went with him inside the huddle. Can you talk about your the way you think about French opera, French romantic opera, and uh, your approach and maybe some of the singers who 
you are uh, trying to model yourself after? Well, uh, well you, you forgot to name one, which is uh, Roberto Alania, because he was yes. the first, actually, for me to, to hear. But actually, uh, also, there, were, there was one, because um, it was, he was a baritone. And uh, Gérard Souzet, who was ah, uh, really fantastic. Yeah. When I was a kid, um, my grandmother, she had a, an old uh, tourne-disc um, thing at home. And with this old 33 tours, we say in, in French, uh, big, uh, big, big discs, and there was uh, José Van Damme, there was Gérard Souzet, there was uh, Domingo, of course, but Gérard Souzet and his art of phrasing the French was very, ex really exceptional, especially because I think that uh, a lower voice has bigger chances to get the words and to get the, the, all the text in all the tessitura. Being, being in a high, high tessitura is complicated, especially for sopranos, to, to make sure the French can be really tasted in the right way but for me it was Roberto Alagna especially when I was uh, I think 17 18 when I, I heard his uh, one of his first CD and I I I thought wow is it allowed to sing French like this because mm. I heard a lot of French uh, from a lot of singers which I admire like like uh, Nicolai Guedda and, and uh, Placido Domingo but I have to say that's art that way of singing French that elegance in the sound and in the line was really something that I I really was, I was in a way a bit shocked that it's possible. But for many years, actually singing French was not easy for me. And actually I try to avoid singing French because it's my, my instruments, my physiology was just not ready for that. And it took me a few years before I could really begin to, to, to really sing it the way I want, which is tending to that, to the direction of these great artists. So can you put your finger on the things, the specific things that Roberto Alagna does or Gerard Suze does? I mean, we talk about phrasing and mm -hmm. we talk about diction, which is great for people like us who know right away what you mean, but are there like little details that you can point out for listeners? So when they go to your recordings or they go see your performance, they can listen for what you're trying to do. Well, what I'm trying to do is also making sure, sure, sorry, I'm not uh, blocked in a box of always singing the same phrases the same way. French has this amazing, these amazing possibilities to, to sing the same phrase, but in different ways to, 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 to use an S differently, to use the liaison between the words. Uh, it's like when, when you see in, in, um, in uh, La Vie Antérieure, J'ai longtemps habité, j'ai longtemps habité. It's all possible. Both are right. None of them is incorrect. And to make sure that whatever I do in French is uh, sort of instinctive and I decide on the moment, do I use that or do I or, or not? And I don't say that, I don't think that people should speak French to be able to sing French the right way, but it is a, it is a language like also other language that has to be tasted you cannot just arrive on stage and try to sing as, as same for Italian and Russian, but it comes with a lot of not work, but experiencing going in a room with a pianist and trying and trying and, and there is nothing that is wrong. Of course, there are things that are not correct, but everything is possible. And also making mistakes uh, in French make people able, singers able to just to find their own way through the French, because we are all different with this. Even though I admire Roberto Alagna, I don't really have the same approach with Roberto Alagna. Jonas Kaufmann has an, an amazing French. His French is perfect, but it's the Jonas Kaufmann French. So I think everyone has a different 
shade or a different uh, approach of it, Nikolai Geda also. So uh, I think it's about making little mistakes and about trying and singing and not trying to get it right at the first time or at the 10th time, because now I sing Faust or Manon or Romeo, and in 10 years, it will be different. In 10 years, I will have different ways to, to, to sing it. I will be able to, to, to make phrases differently. And this is, this is what is amazing with singing and not only with French, but about French. I recommend just to try and to listen and to be curious and to talk to French people, to talk to Belgium, Swiss, French, Canadian people about their experience of their own French. This is very important. And that kind of nuance really does come through in your singing. I can say as someone who studied singing and studied French, but I'm far from fluent. Um, and it kind of contrasts with the more international approach to singing in all of these languages that you get on the opera scene in general. Why do you think that kind of very specific uh, national style or, or linguistics-based style is relatively rare today? It's rare, but also I don't think that there is a French, I think, yes, there is a French style depending on the period. But um, to be honest, when I compare with a lot of my colleagues, uh, for example, we, we sang French together with uh, Sabine de Vielle at a concert, at a, at a recital in Zurich, and we have very we have different approaches and but and i love her french and it's it fits her voice it fits her color um today i think that we are trying to find also a shortcut i think the ipa the uh, Inter international phonetic alphabet is a good solution for to, to approach something but then to really go deep deep into the text and deep into the the comprehension it's about time and it's about reading the text and trying to understand it. So I think that now we have these generations of singers of today, before it was the Alanya uh, generation and before that another one. And in 10 years will come new generations of French and non-French singers who will sing the French repertoire with their own approach. And I don't think that we should, we should uh, be in a box and sing that way only because some people need to roll the R's. I don't, I don't want to in French but I have to flip it sometimes to make sure that my R's are understandable and can be heard. But it's all a matter of experience and with the time it changes. I don't I mean, know if I answered the question. There's, there's so much to, to go on this topic and um, I think you're very kind to not to not name anybody, you know, it's like, oh, they're doing this wrong, whatever, you know, and you're complimentary. With Jonas no wrong. Yeah, no, yeah. Sure. <laughs> there is maybe less enjoyable for the audience, but yeah. there is no wrong. But that's the thing. I mean, I don't know if audiences are learning because they're hearing A-list international singers yeah. singing Manon or whatever opera, and they hear the, all the critics and the you know the recording labels are after these singers and promoting this is the best of our art right now, you know? Yeah. So um, it's been like this for a long time. Yes, it's it's part of this. If you if you, I think for for the people who are listening and, and seeing this interview, it's also about the curiosity of the listeners and the people. If you just if you just listen to the crust of the cake, which I call the big big stars that are pushed forward, you, you only hear one percent of what exists. But if you begin to dig a bit and if you begin to to be curious about who's saying what, then you will find a lot of other possibilities. Yeah. Well, the knife cuts both ways because we know that there are <laughs> there are singers, 
you know, that are based in their countries who don't have the international career because maybe their technique isn't good enough to put them in the biggest houses. But you have both of these things right now. Like your your sound is incredible and it's attractive even if people don't know what the heck you're doing, you know, <laughs> because you have, you're very good on stage. The tone is gorgeous. You're, you know, you're physically free. Like there's all these components that make an opera star, you know, and that's why we, I'm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and plus you have a dimple. These are, <laughs> does it, does that help in sure. Chicago? I mean, look at my career. I mean, years. obviously. So. <laughs> I know that you were scheduled to do Romeo that was uh that that wasn't able to happen due to the mm -hmm. pandemic but is that is that one that is going to continue to be a calling card for you yeah yeah, yeah. No, I, actually it was supposed to be my debut I was so sort of a crazy crazy project I do that a lot actually it was my my first Romeo was my first singing at the Met so it was going to be uh, a lot of pressure but also I was going to be your role debut Yeah, it was going to be my role debut because okay. I, I thought you were saying your your Met debut, but you're talking it about it was my Met's debut, and going oh to my gosh, my role <laughs> debut, which is uh, well, it's it's part of this. I, I did that a lot in Vienna. I did my Nemorino debut with three days rehearsals. I did my <laughs> my uh, Bohem debut in in Zurich with very few rehearsals, and it's uh, it's also doing these things that I realized that I had the the nerves to to go on stage, being prepared for myself, but for myself but not really totally like having weeks of rehearsals before but sometimes it helps to jump into something to jump in the unknown so Romeo is something that I'm going to sing a lot in the next years and I'm really happy about this because this is young this is fresh this is the line is is perfect as for Manon that I, I it's one of my favorite roles De Grieux mm -hmm. is amazing because also De Grieux allows me to to develop and to to sing All the um, all the colors I have in my voice, going from the, the 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 pianissimo, also the mixed voice, to the fortissimo, I can really use everything that I have at my disposal at the moment with my voice, and so that's a great chance with this and with Faust too. Faust is written in a different way. I have to say it's less young, but uh, it's it's a fantastic role. And also, Danation, uh, Danation de Faust is coming next mm -hmm. season. Uh, well, actually, at the end of this season, I think, and um, and also Werther and Hoffman. So I try to not do everything at the same moment because I think every time I, I do a new role, I have to digest it 
because it's a, it's a long process, especially when you and I go to roles like Werther who are emotionally very hard, hard right. and complicated to to digest because it goes you have to go through a lot of very complex feelings. Uh, it, you have to go deep, and I go deep in the in the characters. So so um, so Werther is coming uh, next season if everything goes well. It will be in France. And uh, Hoffman, I do will do my debut in Germany next year um, as a in a new production. Hoffman is a is a role that I really it's one of my dream role because when I was younger, there was this VHS of Domingo singing it at. I, I, I know exactly Dominic which one you're talking about. Yeah, Agnes Balza, right? With Agnes Balza and Ileana Kutrubash, I think. Ileana Kutrubash, exactly. Who was Antonia? She was amazing. And and for me, Domingo was it. He was he was this this youth. This this uh, he had this energy, and uh, Hoffman is fantastic. I really I really love actually the progression of going to Olympia, Antonia, and and uh, Julieta, um, and it's it's uh, it's an opera that rely, it's really it's on my shoulders. It's on the shoulders of the of the tenor who has to to tell the story. It's his thing, and it's a big big challenge. And I'm really I'm looking forward to seeing that. So I think Hoffman, I mean, I'm crazy about this opera, but I think Hoffman more than any of the operas we talked about has such a clear progression of, you know, being this youthful, naive, first time in love character mm -hmm. to somebody who ends up becoming an alcoholic, maybe sex yeah. addict or drug addict, you know. Um, how do you, I mean, you haven't done it yet, but how are you thinking about approaching that? And also there's this throat busting, the Dieu de Calivresse, which is, I don't know how anybody sings that thing. It just sounds so <laughs> well, awfully first, hard. First, my, my approach is human. Is what, it, what is it to fall in love numerous times, many times, and be disappointed and be, feel betrayed and feel horrible about myself and hating the entire world that it didn't work? This happens to... It is very human. Hoffman is a very human guy that is just disappointed by life, but especially disappointed by himself because he keeps doing the same mistakes. So this is something that is very human and uh, ending uh, alcoholic is, well, all ends, I think, uh, enjoying life and, and drinking a lot, but he's doing this in a quite early age. And I think it is more, more about, there is something of Werther also in, in Hoffman. There is something very depressed, very, um, how to say this, uh, a character that is really self-tortured and uh, I, I also like these these characters. You find that in Degrieux, you find that in in, uh, in Hoffman and in Werther. There is something very human. There is a human approach to to find there. And this is this is what I like to 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 think of. What would I say if it was me, being naive, falling in love with with a, with a robot, or falling in love with with a woman like Antonia or Julieta, because our hearts are human. And we have to go back every performance. We have to go back to the beginning of it to discover love for the first time to where, whether you sing Romeo or Faust or, or De Grieux, it has to be, you have to go from the beginning and be fresh and to be sort of a virgin in your mind. And mm -hmm. uh, it's also an exercise for, for a singer to, to repeat performances of an opera, you know, the end but you have to go through all these feelings. You have to go through all this singing to, to tell a story because in the end, we are storytellers. We tell a story to the, to the audience. And this is, this is what I like is to, to make sure that I was 
um, how to say, um, not convenient, but I was uh, convincing in uh, in telling that story to the audience, whatever the role is. Even if you're too tall. <laughs> even if I'm too tall, even if I'm too too fat or too thin or whatever, or too, uh, so, maybe I, you know I have gray hair here, so maybe <laughs> Romeo doesn't uh, doesn't apply to me anymore. But it's, uh, I I do. do have I always tough. think I always think about the first pictures of Roberto Alagna I ever saw was him in white tights. I think it was that Royal Opera House production of uh, Romeo. Yeah, where, yeah, he, he makes was, um, Leontina Vaduva. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, he had great cool. legs back then. So. I think he was doing karate or something. I forget. He was. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we are running out of time, and I, there's a couple more questions I want to ask you. Please. Um, I know you're in the middle of doing this recital tour right now, where you're singing Le Nid d'Ete and songs by Du Parc and songs by Strauss, uh, which are all things that I'm crazy about. Um, we don't always find singers with an international career, you know, who are in demand to sing you know, Romeo and Faust and Namorino, who take time to put together um, a long recital. Pro I mean, Le Nuit d'Ete by itself is, that's it's half long, the program. It's, yeah, It's long and it's very difficult and it's a big challenge vocally. Yeah. But, uh, definitely, uh, if, I, if I may just... Uh, yeah, because, go. Uh, I've been working uh, when my, my coach, Karen Matheson, arrived in Zurich five years ago from, from the Metropolitan Opera in New York. We begin to work and we, we, we really developed a trust she she began she really ended up being my ears for my recording being my my judge we have a we have a deal i told i told her the day you hear me singing like mm -hmm. you have to tell me and you have to 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 kick my ass because mm -hmm. uh, it's it's our deal she has to do that uh, <laughs> one day and so we 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 developed our our trust also through through the repertoire i mean i went through everything with her and then we thought we were invited uh, to, to do to do recitals. So while Nuit d'été, Le Nuit d'été, I will not be able to sing it the way I want until maybe I'm in ten years or fifteen years because it's very low. Yeah, and, I mean, Spectre de la not, Rose is not for yeah, a tenor to sing. And I'm not. I'm definitely not in my comfort zone when I sing Le Nuit d'été, mm -hmm. uh, which is exactly why it's interesting to sing Le Nuit d'été because if I only sing sing things where I'm in my comfort zones, I think it's just too easy mm. so i like to bring a bit of challenge and uh it's hard to sing it i'm not able to sing it the way i want but it's a big challenge first for the text the text yeah. is very intense uh it's storytelling it's Berlioz's uh world of music which is sort of it's an all it's he has his own world he doesn't it's so crazy his world i don't understand it i get <laughs> lost in it <laughs> he has his own world and he it's not the guno world it's not the masne world it's the berlioz yeah. world and this is a big challenge you are singing morgan on this concert and this is a song that everybody knows because you know everybody programs this song because it's a genius song yeah it's um, it is because it's such a popular song do you have anything you want to say about it that maybe they should listen for in your well, what, it's 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 special also because actually I began to learn it um, before the lockdown in, in in Europe, and I sang it. We we worked on it with Karian numerous times, and we were never satisfied. She was not satisfied with her the, the way she was playing it, and it, she rem she told me she remembers she worked she worked on it with with very very big pianists and and conductors in New York, and I was never satisfied. And then. After there was this little thing thinking that every day in Europe and in the world, we were thinking this is the end of the world. 
everybody's going to die from this from this uh, uh, virus and mm. this is a catastrophe and it is a catastrophe and at some point we thought that i thought that this could be a message of hope because the mm. first phrase is and tomorrow the sun will shine again whatever day it is tomorrow it shines again mm. and it's it became to me maybe maybe it's it's my own version of morgan it's just about peace about finding the peace in yourself and knowing that there is hope every day for the day after yeah so it may be not maybe not as deep as maybe you could see it but it is my version of it because it's also very human to think today was a hard day today we lost so many people today this the, the news are horrible today the world is 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 suffering people are suffering singers are not singing people have to change uh, their jobs people have to to choose between between performing music or eat and this is a catastrophe for our, our opera world and classical music world mm -hmm. and for me this is suddenly this thing that yes but as long as there are people like me who are lucky enough and have the chance to sing there is a message of hope saying well tomorrow tomorrow is another day As we in the States are watching, uh, as the European houses and companies are starting to be able to open up a little bit and navigate this pandemic in a very different way than how we're experiencing it yeah. here. Um, how has that adjustment to the COVID era performances been to you? Can so for me, there was the, the first experience of the reopening of the Opera House in Zurich in, in July with the Sabine de Vielle. We did a recital together. And it was uh, half half the audience could be there, <clears throat> but it was really people respected this very mm -hmm. well. Then it was Salzburg Festival in summer, where I was very I was honored to be invited for the hundredth year anniversary of the festival, and people really really respected the rules um, very well. People wear the mask. People had some some either alcoholic gel for the hands. People would 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 wash their hands all the time. And the people were so happy to finally go out, go out and see a performance because we also forget that for some people, 
Some people need sports. Some people need Netflix. Some people need Amazon Prime, and some people need Opera. And some people need portamentos executed yeah, correctly. Yeah, they do. They do too. That's true. <laughs> but he to to be able to see. Oh, I'm very sorry. I received a little call. Sorry. We're good. Did you hear? Do you hear me? Yeah, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Do you need to answer that call? No, absolutely not. But okay. I I just need to go back to 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 you. Do can you record it now? It's yeah, fine. it's fine. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, what was very amazing, really amazing, was to, to see how people were happy to 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 be in in an audience, to see the lights going down, and to to see the singers going on stage. That was really, really, really strong. But also, I see that in Europe we are very lucky to have still uh, opera houses performing. The the whole production of Traviata in Bordeaux was a huge success. There was no problem, no case. Uh, we were extremely attentive and, and cautious with the with the virus and with the being responsible for, for ourselves. Now I see, for example, in Zurich, I, I will begin the, the rehearsals for Manon next week. And uh, we all singers have been uh, designated in a group. So I am in the group with the, the singer singing Manon and the singer singing Lesco. We are a group. We have to stick together during the rehearsals. And we are not allowed to get close to another group of singers who are also involved in other productions at the same time mm -hmm. to minimize the risks hmm. and to make sure that we, yeah, we, we, we keep really in, in mind that it's a danger. It's a potential danger. We still have private lives. We, we meet people, but we have to be very careful. So some opera houses come with very different uh, protocols and we have to be extremely respectful of that and uh, after Manon in Zurich I will be in uh, Munich for La Bohème and I know they have a very different also very different protocol I am so lucky that I'm one of the singers that is able to sing today <clears throat> that whatever whatever protocol is in, in in place I'm I'm just happy to comply I have to say well, tell the management of these opera companies that you talked to a pair of Americans, but it was through Zoom. So yeah, there was no chance you're, of you're, infection. You're safe. <laughs> oh, I wish we could continue this conversation, but um, it's it's time to end. Please tell Carrie Ann Matheson that we would love to have her as a guest because she sounds like a brilliant woman. And I'm so she curious is, about her I, ideas. I, really, I urge you, please, to to do an interview with her because she has so much to say. She has so much guidance and so much advice to, to, to give to, to, to young singers. She is mm -hmm. really an amazing person and a, one of the greatest coach I've met. Yeah. And I'm very happy for, for her to, that she goes to San Francisco. I'm very happy for the singers there who will enjoy her, her experience because now she has a European experience. And it's very important for American, American singers to know what is expected for them from them when they come to Europe because it's mm -hmm. a different world from from the US and I think she will do an amazing job there so great to have Benjamin Bernheim on the show in October 2020 the next month November 2020 Lawrence Brownlee had just released his album Amici e Rivali with Michael Spires and was set to star in two streamed events on Opera Philadelphia TV. Right after our interview, Brownlee made it onto the cover of Opera News magazine. Coincidence or was it the OBS bump? In March 2021, Brownlee was appointed to the visiting faculty of the Juilliard School. And just last month, his new recording of Ipuritani was released. That was Matt Cummings' good call, by the way. And then back in November, Tobias Wright 
is dead to us, rejoined the team, along Matt and Oliver, to go inside the huddle with Larry Brownlee. Let's take a listen. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me here on Opera Box Score, all of you, uh, Oliver, Toby, Matt, all of you guys. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to chat with you. Thanks for all the nice things you said. Lawrence Brownlee and friends, Larry Brownlee and friends. Uh, you know, it was meant to be something that uh, was meant to reach out to all the people of the city. You know, when we do these, we want to try to make sure that uh, everyone feels invited. Uh, and we want to tell people that the music of opera is not that uncool. It's very cool. And it's not that far from maybe some of the music, you know, uh, I grew up in church singing gospel. So that was my foundation. And I've done all different styles of music. And I also sing opera. And I think a lot of people have this natural reaction to opera. They think, oh, that's something else that I don't really like or I don't understand. And what we want to try to do with these Lawrence Brownlee and Friends concerts is try to show them that it's not that far of a distance from what you love, as I said before, to what opera is, and show that the same people who do uh, some of these operatic pieces can also do some popular song, can also do some spirituals, and maybe, you know, whatever. You know, something that really identifies to a different person that likes a different style of music is what I want to say. So I've been uh, happy to do that. You know, I'm one of these artists that feel like we as uh, musicians and artists should reach out to the community to, uh, to fight for our art form, uh, to try to be in the trenches and advocating for this. And so that's the reason why I do it uh, with Lawrence Brownlee and Friends and also giving voice at Houston Grand Opera is, you know, my baby as well and Opera Philadelphia and all these things. Uh, we've been reaching out to communities and thankfully a lot of the people in these various cities have been so uh, impressed by the, by the performances, but also have expressed interest into giving opera a try. And so that is at the root of it, the hope, you know, that people would, you know, really try, try to engage themselves in trying to uh, come to these operatic performances, but uh, it's been successful thus far. And I hope to, to do this more in the future. And just kind of following up with that, Larry, can you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, it's, it's an outreach event trying to tap into communities, but can you talk about curating the program? You know, there's such a mixture. How do you decide what goes on there and thematically intertwining music theater, gospel, opera to, to tell the story and make the ask of the audience to then come back? Can you just talk about that a little bit? Well, the first thing we do is we start with the artists themselves. What do you guys like to sing? You know, if someone says, I don't sing anything uh, pop music or I don't sing any, any popular song or any spirituals or anything like that, then, of course, we're not going to include something on the program that doesn't, you know, mesh with them. But we try to pick a diverse group of artists. Uh, it's for the most part, it's been artists of color. And it doesn't always have to be because I always think the diversity is more than just black people. Diversity is a lot more than that. And so uh, more iterations in the future will have more diversity as far as like ethnicities as well. But we take the program and we say, okay, these are the different styles we want to try to approach. What would you like to sing? Because I think it also originates from what people like to do. And so, uh, for example, when we did it at Lyric Opera of Chicago, Solomon Howard, who's an incredible operatic singer, but he also sang Stevie Wonder and he grew up in that style and he played the congas and the tambourine. And so he said, let's just go completely left field and do this. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And that was one of the highlights of the show at um, Chicago. And so we try to like try to go through the different genres and then just find what people can offer and whatever that is. And then that's how we put it together. But this, that's something that's um, diverse, something that is um, varied, 
uh, so people can enjoy it. We want people to have that wow factor. Oh my gosh, an opera singer can also do this. And so that's been the root of what we've wanted to do. And so as we reach out into the, you know, the people after the concert and, you know, when we were in Chicago, I'm, I'm speaking to Chicago, uh, when we were there, so many people said, oh my gosh, this is an incredible experience. And we didn't even have to do the work as much as they told us, I'm going to come back. When is an opera that, you know, is maybe suitable for a first time gore? Uh, and, you know, we tell them, of course, you probably don't want to go to Parsifal in your first opera, <laughs> uh, but probably, you know, do something like a magic flute or maybe a modern piece or something like that to kind of whet your appetite. And then from there, uh, relationships have begun. So that's kind of uh, the, the process we like to have when we do the concerts. And hopefully it is something that will stick. So they'll be wanting to come uh, to the first thing they can get their hands on a ticket for. So I feel like I have to say Solomon Howard, he's very easy on the eyes. So it also helps. <laughs> Sorry, Eileen. Um, but as you were saying about, um, you know, have them bring out their other skills. Whenever an opera singer does anything besides sing, it's like magic. All of a sudden it's like, what exactly. you play the drums? What you play the tambourine? Like, it's like what? <laughs> so it's always so impressive to see people's other skills. And Solomon is also a percussionist and uh, he did this acapella Swing Low Sweet Chariot uh, accompanied on the tambourine, but he was using like all these different techniques on the tambourine. And I was like literally blown away because at one point it sounded like a chain gang and another point it sounded like a celebration. And I was like, what, what is happening here? <laughs> it was so impressive. And he's can, just- can confirm Oliver yeah. cried. Yeah, <laughs> you know that was my debut as my professional tambourine as debut. Tam I have yeah. to say that, uh, but no, Solomon, that guy is so incredibly talented. And one of the things we've talked about doing it, and hopefully we'll do it in the future, is having a concert that's a little bit more involved. Where you know, I see maybe you can see in the background, I have a couple of guitars, and my instrument is really the bass guitar. And we've talked about Morris Robinson, who's like one of my best friends him coming and singing, but also playing the drums. And then I'm singing, but playing the bass guitar, having Solomon on percussion. We have a couple of pianists like Will Liverman, a couple other guys, uh, but to do an evening that is varied where we also come and do the instrumentation as well as the singing. So uh, hopefully we'll come, uh, uh, that'll happen sooner than later, but that's in, that's on the books. That's on, that's in the plans rather to do something nice. like that. And it, it's so great to have events like these that can really serve as a bridge between the, these opera houses and communities who don't always get the kind of attention that they deserve from organizations like that. Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, about, about the black community and, and your role as an ambassador for opera into those communities. Can, can you talk a little bit about what your experience has been? Well, so many people still have this idea. Oh my gosh, I didn't know a black pe person sung. Oh, I don't know that we sing, you know, black people sing classical music. And then I am, I'm there to tell them that some of the greatest singers of all times has been, have been black singers like Leontine Price, Paul Robeson, William Warfield, Martina Arroyo, Kathleen Battle, just, I mean, I could go on and on and on. And they don't know these names, they're not household names, but once they realize that we have a tremendous legacy in that, 
uh, in this. And then they see us, the younger generation out there and getting the opportunities like a Solomon, like myself, Janae Bridges and Denise Graves and Angel Blue, getting the chance to sing leading roles in the world, the world's most important stages. Uh, they're much more um, eager to come and actually experience, you know, the same thing is true when you think about golf. You know, a lot of people didn't like it until Tiger Woods was doing it. A lot of people didn't like tennis until the Williams sisters were doing it. A lot of people don't like NASCAR didn't until Bubba, uh, whatever his name is, Bubba Wallace, I think his name Bubba is Wallace. Mm -hmm. Bubba Wallace. And so once they see us and that we're serious artists, that we're respected and that, you know, we bring our very best. I think that opens up their eyes. And so they see as a community that they want to support us. And so that's the thing we've been trying to do is to show them that, you know, we get the chance to be on the stage and it would be wonderful for us to look out in the audience and to see a representation, you know, of people that look like us as well. And so uh, that is growing. And I can tell you from my own experience thus far for the different houses that I've worked with in Philadelphia, Houston and Chicago to this point. And I've seen, you know, small but a noticeable increase in what I see the people that are performing when I'm on stage. Yeah. So oh, go ahead, Matt. Well, and and so we have coming up at the end of this week on the on November twentieth, Upper Philadelphia is going to be launching the Cycles of My Being recording, and that is uh, some compared to all of these other operas that were written by dead white guys. You know, these are two <laughs> living black a living black composer and a living black playwright on the vanguard of these issues and written directly in response to the the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor protests that broke out this year. Like, what is that like for you to be to be carrying that torch well it was important for me and a few years ago one of my friends his name is jason moran he's a incredible jazz pianist he and i talked about the fact that it is important for us to use our art as a platform and we talked about the fact that when we see things that are on our heart that we must speak out and so uh the cycles of my being started about three years ago maybe three and a half years ago where i woke up in the middle of the night and i was like Crap, another person, you know, we had already lived through Trayvon, we'd already lived through Eric Garner and Mike Brown and so many other things. And I was planning a recital to sing at Carnegie Hall. And I was like, I need something to pair with this. And it was about a year out. And so I said, wouldn't it be great to have a song cycle that spoke about the experience of black men in America, black men and women. And so I reached out to a couple of friends and I just thought it was important to have a African-American or black composer and playwright and so for us to bring our collective experiences together to talk about what it means to be a black man in the United States, uh, we know that our reality is different than someone who looks like every one of you. You know, maybe Oliver, you have some, you know, some idea of what that is. But, you know, uh, for Matt and Toby, it's a little bit different uh, for the experience. And so we realize that we have uh, some difficulties. And for us to take a hold of the conversation and to talk about things like love, about faith, about family, about hope, hope, I think, well, the hope is that people will be able to live a little bit in our shoes. Um, and uh, it's it was a passion project for me uh, that was important for me to kind of put out in the atmosphere. And I'm thankful that Opera Philadelphia uh, wanted to be a part of it and to make that become a reality.
This is a really hard needle to thread, and I don't even think I've fully formed this question in my mind yet, but hopefully you'll see where I'm going with it. Um, it, may know, take when, us while, it may take us a while to get there, but we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are prominent Black artists throughout history, and you, I count you among them now, who, you know, have their specialty, like Leontine with Verity and Jesse with Strauss and Wagner and you with Belcanto, but are also somehow always expected to sing spirituals and recital and whatnot. And I actually am craving that when I go hear you sing, I am now, I want to hear you sing that rep now that I know what you do with it. Um, but do you have any resentment about the fact that there are, you know, black composers throughout history, like William Grant Still or, you know, um, Florence Price or Margaret Bonds, who didn't, who wrote in, you know, a sort of traditional classical idiom, but we only want to hear their spiritual arrangements? You know, a lot of them perhaps didn't get the opportunity to develop those different styles. Uh, even Charlie Parker, I did an opera called Yardbird, and they talked about the fact that he wanted to uh, write a symphony. And mm -hmm. he was so incredibly influenced by Stravinsky. And so uh, when you think about our country and the problems we've had and the fact that there has been a, a lack of opportunities across the board, especially in developing talent and other things, uh, you, you wonder what an opera like, you know, could have been from William Grant Steele or, you know, Margaret Bonds, as you mentioned, or, you know, Udine Smith or w William P Willis Patterson. There's so many other people, if they had had that support and had the avenues open to them that they could develop this, the talent, maybe we would have some pieces in our, in our repertoire now that were living things that would live well beyond their lifetimes uh, because they'd had that support. But I'm thankful that these people did contribute great things in the spirituals realm. And for me, it is something that I also like, that I always like to present when I do recitals because I think it is a wonderful opportunity, but also a responsibility to carry on these traditions. Many of us who grew up in church and know these songs, it is something that was passed down through the generations by rote and by, you know, not necessarily written down, a lot of these things that we see, um, like H.T. Burley and some of these other things, that's just a sketch, if you want to call it, of what the spiritual is. But to really understand how it goes, you know, it's just something that you heard somebody singing in the house and it's been passed down. And so that is much of Americana as, you know, um, the Star Spangled Banner or, you know, Dixie or some of these other things that we think, oh, that's Americana. I think these spirituals are so also are a very important part of the DNA of this country as well. And so I personally like to uh, perform them any chance I get the opportunity. Hmm. And we are fortunate to get the opportunity to hear you sing new repertoire uh, as of yesterday with your new album that dropped. <laughs> uh, Amici Rivali with with Michael Spires with your 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 Rossini arias and duets that. that are I listened to it this Ready morning while I, while I was uh while I was baking a pie and it is <laughs> phenomenal I have to say oh man thank you it's uh this is for us Michael and I this is just really trying to carry on the tradition of you know there's an incredible amount of American bel canto singers. Rockwell mm -hmm. Blake, Bruce Ford, Greg Kunda, Chris Frank Merritt, Lepardo. Frank Lepardo, absolutely. Frank Lepardo, Stan Olson, Paul Austin Kelly, John Ayler, 
you know, some of the younger people, uh, Richard Croft, you know, um, John Osborne, Renee Barbera, uh, gosh, Michael Spires, you know, (laughs) there are a lot of people out there, uh, American. So uh, we were influenced so heavily by some of these people. And it really did uh, give us the confidence or the belief that we could be successful doing this repertoire. So Michael is like a walking encyclopedia, and he was Hmm. responsible for pulling a lot of this repertoire together. And so the two of us together, we recorded it last year in Verona and uh, anticipating the release of it so much. And so it's something that we're very, very proud of. And thankfully, some people got their hands on it before it released a lot of the reviewers. And I'm just happy to say uh, that we've, you know, thankfully, they've been giving us like across the board, like five star reviews, you know, and uh, I'm happy that people are appreciating it. And hopefully we'll get a chance to concertize this thing, because I think that you can really understand the brilliance of Rossini. Uh, when you can listen to his pieces that he wrote, not necessarily us singing him, uh, but you think, my gosh, he wrote that for a tenor. And uh, <laughs> I think people can, you know, there are a lot of high notes they read through in, but uh, I think people can tell that Michael and ha- I had the best time doing this album. We'd love talking about um, style, a vocal style on Opera Box Score. And can you, since you have so much experience, I mean, we have sort of an idea about the difference between <laughs> yeah. like Rossini, Donizetti and Bellini. I mean, we know that Rossini's phrases are a little bit shorter and we know that Bellini's phrases are a little bit more punishing. And we know that Donizetti <laughs> has more of the orchestration that sort of is suggesting Verdi. What is it like for you and what maybe necessarily different things do you have to do in each of those, you know, niche composers when it comes to the tenor rep? You know, Rossini, of course, everybody thinks about the Fioratura, mm-hmm. you know, and it, um, that's, you know, the flexibility, the lightness, even when you're singing things that are not necessarily um, light, like a Barbara Seville or like La Contadi or Italian Girl in Algiers. Uh, but even when you're singing La Donna del Lago and Amida, you need the flexibility and, and the ability to move your voice and not really plant your feet and kind of like dig in like you have to do on a Bellini. If you think of Bellini, of course, Ate Okada, Puritani, and Sonambula, it really uh, requires uh, some tenacity. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's punishing because the tessitura is high. It's high line, but it's kind of like uh, engaged from a technical standpoint that it's just like, I can't take any time off. You know, where Rossini is like, no, da, 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 Bellini is like, I mean, if you think the third act of Ipuritani, son salvo, al fin, son salvo, it's just like, it's never ending. It's relentless. And, you know, Donizetti, as you talked about the orchestration being a little bit thicker in places, everybody thinks about legato, 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 legato. Um, sometimes it's a little, bo- little bit more middle voice sitting, even though from time to time you get the opportunity to go and touch up, you never have to sit up there like you do with Bellini. Bellini just sits so high, so high. Even when you think about Sonambula, the duet, you just hang in that punishing area all night. And so for me, the difference is, is the flexibility of Rossini having to stay in this high um, difficult tessitura of Bellini, the higher sitting tessitura, and then this, the middle voice legato where the orchestration can, can be a little bit thicker in Donizetti. So those would be 
from my standpoint, the real differences between the three, there are some similarities. Of course, you have some Fioratura in Donizetti and Bellini, but it's different in the way of uh, Rossini. And one of the things that Michael and I are doing as a part of this promotion, we're doing this thing called the Rossini Run Challenge. They're all different. So all of you, you guys can take part in it as well. The Rossini Run Challenge. And so <laughs> and it'll show you how difficult Rossini is, but in a different way than Bellini and Donizetti. So I think, Let's you know, do that's... it. Can we set up a tournament? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get a gonna be a tournament. Yeah. So there you I, go. Not that like I want to like make this about me, but like I've always had flexibility in my voice and I always could do the coloratura, but I'm, I can do handle for days. But when mm -hmm. I sing Rossini, I get so exhausted. Like I have all the notes in my voice to sing Accoridente, but I've never made it all the way through the aria. Oh, really? Have you ever had one of those days? And I just want to hear what it's like from you because like we think of you as being flawless technically, but please tell us that you have struggled at the end of Accoridente or something. <laughs> oh my gosh. Of course we all struggle, but the thing is what we have to do is try to mask our struggles. And sometimes we can't let the audience know, even if we're dying inside, we mm. got to like put on that face that, you know, like I did everything I could to get to the end of this aria <laughs> without fainting. <laughs> so yeah, you know, you, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the fact that you get on stage and nothing is like a machine. You know, you have to feel like you're living in the moment and there's flexibility. Sometimes you have to hold that high note a little bit shorter. Sometimes you have to like a, take a detour. Uh, if something's not functioning correctly, uh, you may have to take more breaths. You may have to plan out what you're going to do in a different way. So yes, we have our struggles. And I think it was Pavarotti that said that our voice and our technique is like this. No, it wasn't Pavarotti. Somebody else said, else said this. Our voice and our technique is like this. Sometimes you lean on your voice. Sometimes you lean on your technique because maybe they're not working. Then you have those few times that it happens. It lines up and everything's fine. So sometimes you'll be leaning on something. You're like, oh, that's not working. So I just need to get through it. And as an artist at a certain level, you have to make sure that it's acceptable, whatever you do. Uh, but it may not be what you are the the absolute height of what you're capable of doing. So uh, just being smart with what you have in that moment on that evening, I think is very, very important as an artist uh, to make sure that the audience doesn't know you're about to pass out. Do you ever get to an ornament and decide to go for a different one in the moment? And yes, uh, absolutely. And, and uh, like are all of them always planned out in advance? Like you have your, your Rolodex of the ones that you know that you're going to go for? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, you have some of them planned out and um, you have a number that you can pick from. And usually uh -huh. I don't do it right in the second before, but maybe at the beginning of the aria, I'll say, you know, I feel a little bit frisky today. So let me try something <laughs> that uh, I was working on. So Instead of you go or something like that, a little variation, but you usually have practiced it before. You don't want to like be working on a moment to see if something might work. Uh, so anything, <laughs> you, you know, it's like the more, you know, the more you can show. So if you've had these things in your mind or it may be something that you've done in another in another aria that can fit in that moment there. And so you're like, Okay, I've never done it in Echo di Dente, but I did it on Guerra per una bella. Does it work? I think it does work. And then you can like do something to infuse and make that performance a little bit more special. 
Can you talk just a little bit? We've got a lot of singers who listen to this show about <laughs> working with, and this is what an opportunity to get to ask you this, working with different conductors and how you get to kind of navigate uh, who makes the decisions on what, you know, when you're singing really difficult passages and how much do you personally find that you have to uh, readjust certain things based on who you're working with? Well, at a certain level, people, they want to see you do their best, I mean, do your best because they want to do their best. And it's best not to have any type of conflict. So uh, a lot of them will ask you, what do you do here? Do you need any more time for something or how does it work for you? Or maybe they will suggest something. And of course, uh, at a certain level, I respect those people so much that they'll that I feel like they're going to give me good information. Or they may say, what do you think about this after they've heard heard me sing something? Or if they want me to do something, then I'll say to them, what do you think about this? Because this might actually work. And so there's usually collaboration and people are very, very open. I mean, I've done that with people like Benini and gosh, some of the other, some of the other great bel canto singers. But I think it comes from also the place that I, I understand the style of Rossini, Donizetti and Bellini. And I know that something that sounds Rossinian doesn't work in Bellini per se. And if I can understand the style, usually we can agree on what should what ha should happen. But I always try to go to rehearsals very, very flexible uh, to make sure that um, if they're trying to bring something out different, uh, that is something that I could benefit on and make what I do better or enhance what I'm already offering. So um, it's one of the things that I always try to make sure I do is to try to stay open and available that they can give me uh, whatever could be helpful for me as a singer. So we're going to nerd out just a little bit more. Um, <laughs> you know, we are all mostly familiar with a voice like Pavarotti and Corelli and Di Stefano. And when we listen to them for a long time, we begin, begin to understand their techniques. Like Pavarotti always begins to modify, you know, at around E natural or something like that, sometimes before, you know. I've yet to figure out what your tells are. And, and I would be curious to, to wonder, like, what did you smooth out so that you have no tells? And what can we look forward to when you start getting older? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, uh, my teachers have told me that always I have to bring the head voice down mm -hmm. uh, and to make the voice unified unify from top to bottom. And so, you know, we know that tenors start to modify, do all kinds of stuff around E flat, E, F, F sharp, or something like that. So, you know, when I've done exercises, you know, my teacher talks about going slim through the passaggio so there's no break in the register so that it sounds like one voice and so i don't know i think i've worked to try to smooth that over uh sometimes i have to say hmm let's see oh that didn't work like it should and then i need to revert back to some of the things that my teacher told me so what are my tales i don't know it's this idea uh that i mean i've already ha always had a high voice but bringing this head voice down and really trying to have enough head headiness in my sound um, that hopefully that when you that it never feels like it's just a completely different voice 
when I go from the bottom to the top. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Um, it's all about bringing the head voice down and, uh, and smoothing over that area between the E flat. And where do I start to cover? You know, it happens automatically. I'm not necessarily thinking about it per se, but I think it starts happening E flat, E, D or something like that, that I begin to cover it. I actually was doing a, a masterclass earlier today and I was working with the sophomore, young, young tenor. And I was just like, I don't know if you heard the idea of cover yet, but cover starts to happen because if you can't, you can't sing that F wide open like that. That's not going to work. You got to make sure you start to modify before. And that's not necessarily the note that you have to sing there, but you may have to modify it earlier so you can you won't hear the break. And so that's the thing you have to understand with your voice, how it functions and where you have those breaks. And so you can uh, figure that area out. So I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sort of hoarding this question, but um, <laughs> we talked about before we started recording this um, song you sang at Larry Larry Brownlee and friends um, that you dedicate to your son. What is the name of it again? Um, all night, all day. Okay. So I hope you get to sing that in the next version of Larry Brownlee and friends, because it's, it's killer, <laughs> but I will say you do something different in that. And I don't know if you could describe it, but I know that I hear a different approach to your upper register. You are a little bit more open in that type of singing. Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, there's this idea of voix mixte. <laughs> you know, mixed voice that I try to do. And I do a lot of, of heady hooting, if you want to call it that mm -hmm. heady hooting, that's all that other stuff that extends. Now, is that absolute falsetto? Not necessarily. I think there's a difference. In my opinion, there's a difference between uh, falsetto and head voice or voix mix, because I think there's a lot more body in the sound of voix mix rather than Oh, so that when you go from you can make the transitions from going th to that heady hootiness again uh, down into your voice without a break. And so, yes, I like to use that because if you're thinking of angels and, and you know, in that realm and stuff like that, I think it's appropriate for that song. So uh, it is one of the things that I try to employ because the way it was written, uh, the composer, Damien Sneed, a very good friend of mine, he wrote it very high. It's high. The whole thing, I think the highest note is a E flat. Uh, and so that's Thanks. one of those that's one of those pieces where you have to wear your shoes one size too small in order to sing it. That's the swan roasting. <laughs> You're like, wow, I mean, that is really high. You know, that's like middle voice for you, though. <laughs> no, it's not. I'm like, what were you? Were you like take you know, like taking helium in or that day or something like that? is so high. But uh, yeah, I do use that. And that is another element of my singing that I want to try to do that I don't necessarily get to use in Bel Canto because, of course, you're always engaged singing in the full core of your voice. But, you know, uh, for example, in Barbara Seville's that's headier. That's headier in the sound. But I can sing in I mean, it's the same, you know, the same notes, but a different approach. And this is the thing. These are the things I think we need to explore as singers to to increase the, the palette. Have. Yeah. yeah, the palette, yeah. you know, all the things we get a chance to choose from when we infuse our pieces. Jonas Kaufman, I know he's a big conversation, you know, these <laughs> days because. But, you know, Jonas Kaufman, Are we talk thing, about it? you know, one, <laughs> the, the thing I respect about Jonas, he has a lot of tricks up his sleeve. If you want to yeah, call that 
or he has a lot of elements or colors that he infuses his singing with. So I respect that. And so for me as an artist, I want to become more intelligent and be able to, you know, infuse what I'm doing by these various colors that I think we um, have at our disposal. And as you know, I do a lot of art song recitals as well. And I think this is the place where you get a chance to explore these various things. And so um, the more I can do it in different pieces, I want to do it. Uh, Larry, I know that you are a giant Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Die hard. Die hard. <laughs> Pittsburgh um, native right here. Oh, nice. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. You know it? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Youngstown, yep. Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, they're having an incredible season. And I guess my question is to you, you know, Mike Tomlin, future Hall of Famer, Ben Roethlisberger, future Hall of Famer. They're undefeated the midway point. So why is it that the Kansas City Chiefs are going to repeat as Super Bowl champions? <laughs> That's I'm just kidding. Gonna, I'm, that's I'm not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, I, am I buying it just yet with the Steelers? I don't know. Look, uh, Steelers have won a couple close ones and it's, you know, it's arguable that they could have won, uh, excuse me, lost a few ones. Um, the Kansas City Chiefs, when they got beat by the Las, Las, Vegas, Las Vegas Raiders, it was a convincing loss. You know, it wasn't like they lost by the skin of their teeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of teams, you know, you know, we played very poorly against the Dallas Cowboys last week. But I think you see, you know, the thing what people say about any given Sunday, uh, these are professional athletes and coaches who understand schemes and matchups and stuff like that too. Uh, the Steelers, um, could they win? I think they have the talent to win the Super Bowl. I'm not stupid enough to say that they will. Uh, but I, you know, every week that they can kind of find it within themselves to somehow eke out a win, that's the type of, uh, team that you never count out. So uh, I believe in my guys. I got a chance to meet meet the coach. I sang the national oh, anthem awesome. at the the Steelers game one of these you know okay. a few years ago. And so I'm a diehard Steelers fan my whole life. That will always be my team. If it's not my team, that means I don't like football anymore. But I'm a Steelers. <laughs> <laughs> That's my squad forever. But I, I respect that. And I was just teasing about the Chiefs thing. And here's the thing about going eight zero. Mm-hmm. There's no accidental eight zero. There the you NFL. go. I mean, that's impressive. So just wanted there, to put that out there. Also, you and I play each other next week in fantasy football. In the, fantasy uh, football. Yeah. You know what? If, so. I can, if I can have my guys be healthy, good Lord. I mean, <laughs> Nick Chubb is out. Chris Carson is out. Gosh, Devontae Parker had a hamstring in, uh, uh, injury. Cam Newton has been horrible. Horrible. Uh, You've been but, really active on the waiver wire, which I respect. So you're making hey, man. that team. Like, you're hustling, and I'm kind of scared. Hey. I feel like every team we play, <laughs> it's just like we get blown out. Everybody you has know, best, yeah. Hey, here's here's the thing, you know, the championships are won on the waiver wire. And last year in this in the fantasy, I was winning the league the whole way. I was like, I I had like two, three losses the whole season. I was doing well, but because the way we do it is like you leave the waiver priority for the the lower ranking teams, and so they're always picking up players and making acquisitions and building their team towards the end of the season. Where if you've been good, you can never pick up anyone, and if you get an injury later on or something happens, you can never improve your team. So I told I told some of the people that I'm kind of hanging around around the middle of the pack until I make my late season surge because. I've got a. <laughs> I'll, I'll be. I've got a plan. 
Well, Larry Brownlee, thank you so much. Congratulations on the new record. And we look forward to watching all your stuff. You're in so many places all the time. I don't know how you keep up with everything you're doing, but um, I don't either. The, the sit down with Larry Brownlee and uh, Cycle of My Being and the Larry Brownlee and Friends coming up with Opera Philadelphia. So much stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, we're we're watching. And thank you for being on our show. Thanks thank so you, much. guys. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Go Steelers. And again, so great to have Lawrence Brownlee on the show as well. Season six on the OBS was a true bumper crop. And if that's anything to go by, season seven, which starts Wednesday, September 15, 9 p.m. Central, is going to be really something else. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Well, Good call. Obviously, the the NFL season is starting. College football starting in its opening weeks. Uh, Michigan, keeping a close eye on them. I feel like I can actually support Michigan football again this year now that they've made their peace with the pandemic and they have their protocols like many other college football teams in place. Here's another good call. Friends of the show, Eileen Perez and Solomon Howard got engaged earlier this month at the final curtain call of San Francisco Opera's production of Tosca, which is just so delightful. I will say that there must be something about, you know, OBS inside the huddle guests are the ultimate elite community of opera's most eligible singles. Although getting engaged after Tosca specifically, I'm not so sure if that is the production I would choose. Congrats to Eileen Perez and Solomon Howard. All right, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera in podcast-only form. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, what you want to hear on the show, who you want to have us host. You can let us know, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is, well, it's probably fine because it's the end of summer and we're still relaxed. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editors, Weston Williams. For your regular co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you watch your own fantasy football team dominate the season. We're back with an all-new show, Wednesday, September 15th. We kick off Season 7 of the OBS. We go inside the huddle with soprano Aaron Morley. We get you more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more everything under the sun on the stage. Join us.